Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to be with you today. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you that you continue to show yourself to us, who you are and what you do. That you continue to shave down the rough edges of our character, or that you alter our perspective, or that you enhance our vision of this life and of eternity. We pray that you be doing all these things in us now, and that we'd see Jesus more clearly, and that we'd trust him, and that we would follow him. Amen. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the Gospel of John. We pick up our series, and today we are in John chapter 6. You know, when Jesus came, he was on a mission to display himself as the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why he came. And in doing so, the Gospel of John that we've been looking at over the last number now of weeks and even months together gives us account after account and dialogue after dialogue in which Jesus is displaying that to be true, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And he's doing so from seemingly almost every angle. And he's seemingly addressing nearly every objection, both through his words and through his actions. And I hope, I hope and I pray for us as a church family that as you hear these things, that it would continue to foster in you a growth in awe and wonder and an appreciation for the majesty of this person of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. As we turn to John chapter 6, we see that Jesus continues to reveal himself in these ways. First, he does, through, does so through back-to-back miracles, and then a lengthy dialogue about what has just happened. And so follow with me. Today we look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 35, and this is what it says. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here who has five loaves of barley bread and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when the disciples, or when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftovers, the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. 
And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that had remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God the, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Generally speaking, Jesus performs miracles to reveal something about himself or about something, something about the people to whom he's talking. That's why they're called signs. You see throughout the Gospel of John that miracles are referred to as signs because signs point to something beyond themselves. And here, Jesus does both. He reveals something about himself, and he reveals something about those who are in his hearing. And we see that some of the people, actually many of the people, don't like what they hear and don't like what they see. 
And when we get all the way to the end of John chapter 6, 70 verses later, many people will be leaving him for good. Part of the reason why they're leaving him is because some of them are seeing that he is not the prophet that they wanted. The first miracle that Jesus performs here is familiar to many of us, but the result might not be. As we read a moment ago, 5,000 men plus women and children are following Jesus to a place because he has done signs, because he has healed people who've been sick. And as they're approaching, Jesus tests one of his disciples, Philip, and he asks them what they should do, how they should get enough bread for all of these people to eat. Philip doesn't really know what to say, but Andrew chimes in with the only thing he's got. (laughs) The servant boy who's hanging along with us has five barley loaves and two dried fish, but really, what are they? And then what happens next is hard for us to comprehend. Jesus gives thanks. He distributes the bread and the fish to the disciples. And they start walking about and starting giving people food. And they keep giving people food. And they keep giving people food. And they keep giving people food until 5,000 men and women and children, maybe as many as 20,000 people, have now eaten their fill. Just to give you a little bit of perspective, in 2005, there were some bakers in Portugal that decided they wanted to try to break the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest loaf of bread. I don't know what would motivate somebody to want to do that or how they would even accomplish it, but these bakers, these Portuguese bakers, made a loaf of bread that was 3,975 feet long. They made a loaf of bread that was three-quarters of a mile long. And when they sliced it up, it fed 15,000 people. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be one of the disciples. You have a basket, probably not a small basket, probably a large basket. Family after family. Group after group. Time goes by. And you keep reaching to the bottom of the basket thinking that that's it. But there's more food to be given. Everyone has their fill. And as a result, you see that everyone is in awe. I mean, this is what, what's happening here with these 15, 20, 25,000 people. Who knows how many are there? What's happening here is different than a so-called miraculous comeback at a sporting event in which 20,000 people raise to their feet and yell and cheer. That was improbable. This is impossible. (laughs) This is different than what you might imagine in the concert hall when you hear a vocalist with the purest of voices and 20,000 people sit there with their jaw dropped open because what they're beholding is sheer beauty to their ears. That's improbable. This is impossible. These people came because Jesus had done signs and guess what? He delivered again. And so verse 14 tells the reaction. 
They all knew that there was no food, and yet food was theirs. And so when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, the prophet that they've been waiting for. Now, the background of this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Their most famed of prophets, the prophet Moses, promised them upon God's word that they would see another like him. It says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, will raise up a prophet for you like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. For God has said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. For hundreds of years, they've been waiting for the prophet, and the food is multiplied in their very midst, and they say, this must be him. And in some ways, you can see why. It's really interesting in this text, you see there's some mirroring of the prophet that is going on. You see that the ministry of Moses happens around the time of the first Passover, you might remember, in Egypt. And then he leads them into the wilderness after that Passover. And in the wilderness, they receive bread called manna from heaven. But here, Jesus is the one who actually gives them bread. And you see with the first prophet Moses that Moses leads them across the water. The river opens up before them. They escape their adversary and they move into the wilderness on their way to the promises of God for their future and for their existence. But here, Jesus actually walks on top of the water. You see with the first prophet Moses that he descends to the mountain to hear the voice of God. But here... Jesus withdraws to the mountain to be in isolation with his father. And so they are partially seeing God at work, but they don't get it completely. And we know that because the next day on the other side of the sea, many have gone to follow him. And verses 31 and verse 32 indicate that they thought that Moses gave them from the manna of heaven and that the sign that Jesus gave was enough for one claim, but maybe not enough for another claim. And Jesus corrects them that only God could give them such bread as this. And so yes, he speaks the words of God. And yes, he does the work of God. But he's not merely another prophet. Moses led them to these places to keep them alive. Manna from heaven was given to them to keep them alive. They crossed the river to keep them alive. But now the life giver has come to them. Jesus came to be the bread that gives life and to satisfy your soul. Secondly, we see that the reaction to this is that he is not the king that they had hoped for. There's this underlying question here. There's this language of kingship that happens. Is Jesus the king who gives bread, or is he the king who is bread? <laughs> Look at verse 15. Thousands of people have experienced the miracle. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Some believed he was a prophet. Others said this is the opportunity to establish a king and, and, and reestablish the national identity of the Jewish people. And it's not hard to see how 20,000 people could institute a new king. Government coups have been accomplished on much less. But despite their adoration, despite their desperation, despite their desire, Jesus would have nothing to do with a nationalized kingship. And so he walks away from them and retreats to the mountain. When they find him the next day on the other side of the sea, this is what they say. And this is the indication of their hearts. Look at verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the work of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They want a king. And Jesus tells them the only reason they want him to be king is not because of the miracle. It's because they've had their fill of the loaves. It's interesting because normally Jesus is, is rebuking people for just wanting more miracles, just wanting more signs. And here, they wanted the sign. He gave it to them, but they didn't see what it really was. And so he rebukes them for not even recognizing that it was a sign at all. When people get hungry, they think, this is the guy that provides food. I want a king like that. I want a king that when there's need in the land, he miraculously produces the supply. I want a king that when there's famine in the land, he miraculously produces the food. I want a king in which when there's desires for the people, he's the one that can give us exactly what we want, when we want, and how we want. What a king that would be. What we see here is the material temptations of our soul. What can I get out of following Jesus? And that type of recognition, that type of question, is not unique to those in his hearing 2,000 years ago. That's a question. What can I get by following Jesus? That's a question that every single one of us might wrestle with. Will Jesus make me healthy if he's the king of my life? Will Jesus make me rich? Will Jesus improve my life? If I make him king, will he help me accomplish my goals if I have enough faith? The list goes on. Will Jesus give me a spouse? Will Jesus help my kids? Will Jesus give me a new house? This has a name. When we follow Jesus, 
for what we can get out of it, in its most exaggerated expression, this is called the prosperity gospel. I want to follow him for what he gives to me. (laughs) But there's a much more subtle disposition and desire that we have. Most of us, for most of us, it's not, Jesus, I just want you to make me rich. (laughs) It's not as extreme as a prosperity gospel. For most most of us, it's Jesus, I just want a little more. How much more would it take? How much more money would be enough? Researchers have asked this question. Remarkably, the studies show that most people feel, regardless of their income, the answer is pretty much the same. (laughs) When surveyed, most people answer that we need about 10% more than what we have right now to feel comfortable. Whether you make $30,000 a year, $60,000 a year, or $250,000 a year, or a cool million a year, studies have shown that most people want just another 10%. And this reality has prompted the British psychologist Joan Riviere to make the following observation. She says, by its very nature, greed is endless and never assuaged. And by being a form of an impulse to live in, it ceases only with death. Because what happens when you get 10%? Over the course of two years, maybe three years, then you want another 10%. (laughs) And then you want another 10%, and it becomes very easy to see the relationship with this miracle-working God as a relationship in which I get something from it. Many people want to follow Jesus because he makes our stomachs full. And here's the implication. The implication is that you can revere Jesus, but he's still the wrong Jesus. (laughs) You can elevate him as king, but... It's not the kingship that he is exercising. And I feel like this theme is just being hammered on again and again in the sermon series week after week that to truly worship the Lord God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you need to worship them on their own terms. (laughs) That it's not just on your terms with what you want. It seems like Jesus is hitting that from us every angle week after week in the Gospel of John. Because it is one of the most fundamental problems that we have with regard to our belief. And we see it all the time that you can worship Jesus as king, but it's not actually the real Jesus. Democrat Jesus. Republican Jesus. Environmentalist Jesus. Industrialist Jesus. Steelers Jesus. Browns Jesus. Both of those teams are in the same standing on this Playoff Sunday. <laughs> the list goes on. You could, you could, the, the, we want the Trump wall, Jesus. We want the no wall, Jesus. But none of those are the real Jesus. They're all another way to say, I will recognize you because you can do something for me that I want. <laughs> I want a king. 
only a certain kind of king. But what Jesus is doing here is showing that he came to be the bread, he came to be the bread that gives life and satisfies your soul. And that leads to the third observation. And that is this, that he is enough. That Jesus is enough. That we can find complete satisfaction in him. For Jesus to be the bread of life, that has to be what this means. It's not that we find satisfaction or reliance or dependence or joy or gratitude, even in what he does, which has great benefits for us, but it's that we find those very things in who he is. In him, he is God. And we see it littered throughout this account. Just a couple of examples. The people are more than fed. Think about that for a minute. Verse 11 says that they had had as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says that they had eaten their fill. Jesus could have done any number of things to supply for their need. And he supplies in an overabundance. They are more than fed. Secondly, you see the leftovers. There's 12 baskets left over. This miracle is unique in the miracles of Jesus in that the disciples are actually employed in the work of the miracle. You might remember that Jesus performs a miracle at the wedding at Cana. He turns water into wine, and the disciples sit there and they watch. (laughs) But here, uniquely, they are handing out the bread and the fish while the miracle is actually continuing to take place among them. And then... There is this leftover, 12 baskets, not 12 small baskets, probably probably 12 pretty large baskets, all the leftover that increase the supply. And there's rich symbolism here. Why 12? Well, there's 12 disciples, there's 12 tribes of Israel. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that my supply as the bread of life is enough for the nation of Israel. It's enough for the history of God's people. It's enough to fulfill the promises of God. It's enough to fulfill the laws of God. It's enough to fulfill the anticipation of hundreds of years of following him. He's enough. It's also enough for every man who's collecting the basket. It's as if the disciples are going from place to place. They're ministering in his name, and they soon would be doing just that. And Jesus is continuing to supply of their every need. They reach to the bottom of the basket to reach for more bread, and surely they're thinking, this is going to be the last. (laughs) There's nothing left. But there's an overabundance that's left. For as much as they give out, God provides all the more into their very midst. He is enough. And then there's the second miracle of Jesus walking on the water. It's interesting that there's no commentary about this miracle. It's not ever mentioned again. That for the 70 verses in Mark 6, all the dialogue is talking about the first miracle and its results, and they don't even mention the second. It's interesting that there's very little detail about this miracle. I mean, details are simple, that the disciples are rowing in the sea, there's three or four miles out, the wind kicks up, the waves get really hard. There's no crowd to witness this miracle. 
This was simply for the disciples and for us. And Jesus approaches the boat and he says to them, very directly and very simply, it is I, do not be afraid. And verse 21 says, immediately the boat was at land. No conversation, no miraculous power over nature that's displayed, no stilling of the seas, no stopping of the winds, just some very simple words. It is I, do not be afraid. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm enough. So here's the question. Is he enough for you? If everything you hold dear in this life is stripped away from you, he can still be enough for you. That's what it means to be the bread of life. Could you be satisfied in him and in him alone? <laughs> yes, you can. That's what it means for him to be the bread of life. He is enough. Now, I'm not saying that you wouldn't grieve loss or that life wouldn't be difficult at certain times, but he is enough for your ultimate satisfaction. He is enough for your true rest. He is enough for your lasting peace. He is enough for the truest longings of the truest expressions of your heart of hearts. That's what it means that Jesus didn't come just to give bread, but that he came to be bread. He's enough. And so verse 35 says, Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in the midst of prison and scorn and beatings, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain because he is enough. This is why Martin Luther can be in hiding in Wittenberg Castle in Germany while under persecution and the threat of death from the papacy, translating the Bible into the common language of the people, rejoicing daily in his fellowship with the Lord Jesus because he's enough. It's why William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake in England, rejoiced as he translated the Bible into the English language for the common folk because Jesus is enough. It's why David Brainerd, the missionary to Native American peoples in Delaware who lived a very short life that was wrought with suffering, found great joy in a harrowing tale of evangelism because Jesus alone is enough. It's why a friend of mine named Todd Estabrooks, who's a normal guy in his 50s, former police officer, suffers every single day of his life in pain from one of the worst cases of Crohn's disease documented in our country. And he does so clinging to the Lord Jesus, and he learns every single day anew what it means for Jesus to be enough. Or the guy who is absolutely killing it in his job. Promotions, money, accolades, and enjoying all the benefits that that brings. 
But at the end of the day, he goes home and he puts his head on his pillow and he realizes that there is a true king that cares not about money or prestige or accolades. He cares about something eternally greater. And he finds his rest in him because Jesus is enough. Or the person who works 12-hour shifts every day to provide for his or her family, who wouldn't choose this job, but it pays the bills. And he finds joy and delight, even from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like there should be joy or delight because he doesn't find joy and delight in following his passions. <laughs> he doesn't find joy and delight following his hobbies. He doesn't find joy and delight looking for the next recreational thing that will entertain him. He finds joy and delight in a person <laughs> because Jesus is enough. Or two colleagues of mine, both pastors, both lost their wives just in the past month. Josh lost his wife after a long battle with cancer. She leaves behind her husband and their three young sons. Brad's wife, just a few weeks ago, was nine months pregnant. She had a small cut that turned into a major infection. Her brain swelled. And in the course of nine days, she went from perfectly healthy to unconscious, to delivering the baby in an emergency C-section, to dying. And those men cling to the Lord Jesus every day because he's enough. Or you. <laughs> the hundreds of stories in this room this morning, ups and downs, ins and outs, jobs lost and jobs gained, children struggling, marriages succeeding, and on down the line, through the times of plenty and the times of need, you need bread. You need food. You need life-giving sustenance. And he is enough. He not only gives everything we need and more, he is everything we need and more. That's what it means to be the bread of life. Jesus came to be the bread that gives life and satisfies your soul. He is enough. He is enough. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a great description and an even greater promise to us. A promise that we struggle to grasp. Because each and every one of us in our own time and our own ways seeks to find our satisfaction and our truest sense of life in a variety of things and circumstances. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus promises to be enough for us in those days, in every day, in every circumstance, as the bread of life. Help us to know this. Help us to feel this. Help us to trust him all the more in this. And teach us what this means for us. Amen.